Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. I am excited you're here. Um, I want to do a five minutes of fun today because I wanted to tell this story about college. So if you saw the title of the podcast, it's about Esther. And as I was researching Esther, I was purely going to be researching Esther, but it led me on this whole rabbit trail of realizing it was Purim and researching what Purim is and, and all of this stuff. And it reminded me of this story in college where I I was a Jewish studies minor in college for about two years. My aerospace department was very, very confused. But let me back up. So my aunt and uncle met in Israel. Um, so when they were both, I think, just right out of high school or maybe in college or something, they both ended up volunteering for the U.S. Christian Embassy, and they met there, got engaged, and then they went back to get married there. So when I was like four months old, I was super young, my aunt and uncle had their wedding in Israel, and so my whole family flew out to Israel to get, for, to watch them get married, and then while we were there, the, I think it was, it's the oldest Anglican church, I believe it was an Anglican church, and so the oldest Christian church in Jerusalem is where they got married. While we were just doing the wedding festivities, they threw in a baptism for me. Um, so I got baptized over in Israel as well. But my whole family has like a lot of interest in Jewish culture because as Christians, you know, we we were grafted into the Jewish uh, tree essentially. And so all of our history is like the history of the Jewish people faith-wise. And so... My family's always had a big emphasis on on Jewish history. We used to have like Shabbats um, and and all of that. So probably not as strict as as like the actual Jewish Shabbat, but we would all get together and say Happy Shabbat and you know come together on like a Friday night. So we did that all growing up. Um, my uncle, when he went to college, I'm pretty sure he I'm pretty sure his major was Jewish studies with a minor in theology. I might be getting that slightly wrong, but he definitely did Jewish studies and. So when I went into college, I was like, wow, my college has a Jewish studies program. And I knew I wanted to do aerospace engineering. So, you know, it wasn't going to happen that I was like a Jewish studies major. But I did realize they had a Jewish studies minor. That wasn't a ton of classes. And I had taken enough AP classes to get my course load down enough where I could easily take a minor. So one day, so I just declared a minor right away. I was like, there's no way that I'm not going to want to do this. Like Jewish studies... It's going to be an amazing minor. People were very confused, but I thought it was like a unique sort of thing. And I just really wanted to learn about Jewish culture, Jewish studies. I thought it was going to be great. So I declared that major right away. And I signed up for my first class, which is called Intro to Jewish Culture. I was like, great. Well, this is going to be easy. I actually pulled up the class on the CU catalog just to go reference back. Now, this was years ago. So this was in 2014. So at this point, it's like seven years ago, but I still see where it went wrong. So I'm reading the Jewish studies class description. It's talking about, it explores the development and expressions of Jewish cultures across the map, um, emphasis on the variety of ethnicities within Jews and their cultural productions, changes. And then it says, including issues such as sexuality and food ways. 
okay, so that's fine. But I got the reading list for this class and I, I kid you not, it was like three out of the six books were all about this like sexuality, Jewish sexuality, but it wasn't Jewish sexuality. It was like, hey, here's a novel about how a mom is having sex with her son or like how the son is discovering his sexuality. Like it was so emphasized on sexuality. And I was like, what is going on? I just wanted to learn about like the holidays that Jews celebrated. And I wanted to learn like things about Jerusalem and, and their prayers and I don't know, stuff like that. Like I didn't want to just read like three books about this weird perversion of sexuality through like this modern novel. It was so weird. So I looked for any path in the minor to not take this class because I was like, this is going to be so painful. And I just couldn't find one. And like, it's a prereq to almost every single class. So you have to take it. So I dropped the class and I decided to do a more practical minor anyway. So I decided to do a minor in computer science. I think at that point, maybe I wasn't sure actually what I was switching my major to, but I knew I wasn't doing Jewish studies. This was like first semester that I tried to take a class, which I think was my freshman year. But you had to go through this whole process to like officially drop a major at CU. And it wasn't that hard, but I just always kind of forgot to do it. I didn't think it was that pressing because I was a freshman and I had plenty of time. Like they always say, you can take as many classes as you want in another department and just declare the, like you could declare the day before you graduate pretty much. So I just thought, oh, there's no, you know, there's no time pressure to do this. So I just didn't do it for like, I think it was another year and a half. So I'm pretty sure I was sitting there in my junior year, maybe first semester of junior year. And when I, when I was in college, I did a lot of like panels about being a woman in engineering or um, for new prospective students where you'd sit on a panel and people would ask you questions about the school or the program or whatever. And I was sitting at this panel one day and um, someone asked about uh, if you could do aerospace engineering and still fit in time to have a minor. And what kinds of minors do you have to do? Like, do you have to do only applied math or, you know, stuff like that. And I'm sitting there with like, I don't know, 10 students and the academic advisors are also there. And the academic advisor said that she was going to take that question. And she takes the microphone and goes, yeah, you can have like a wide variety of, of minors. Most people do like applied math or computer science or something related, but we actually have someone that's doing aerospace engineering with a Jewish studies minor. And everyone's like, wow, that is so cool and unique. And so she didn't know that it was me that had the Jewish studies minor. And she also didn't know that I had declared it freshman year and then just decided to not do it, not taking any Jewish studies classes and then not dropped it, just literally not taking the time to drop it until then. So that was like the example she was using as you can do any minor you want. We even have someone with Jewish studies. And I was like the one there and I was not doing the Jewish studies minor and I switched to computer science like everyone else. So yeah, if you were the incoming freshman going to see you that heard you could do a lot of different minors. Technically that's true, but it was a lie that that I was still doing Jewish studies. So I just remembered that as we as I was looking into uh, all this Jewish history and everything. Um, but since I never got that Jewish studies minor, and I would have really honestly liked to get a Jewish studies major, uh, since that never happened, I'm just going to use this podcast as basically a Jewish studies uh, major and learn whatever I think is important about Jewish culture and uh, 
and any Jewish history. So I think it's going to be really, really interesting as we keep going forward. And I'm already learning so much about the Jewish history and the therefore our history. And yeah, keep keep listening if you're interested in the history of Esther and who she was, what she did, and then Purim, which I had no idea before I started studying this, um, what Purim is and how it's celebrated today. So enjoy the episode, everyone. Hello, everyone. Today we are talking about the story of Esther. Now, originally when I wanted to research this, I had no idea where it would lead. I basically just wanted to do like a biblical heroes discussion. And I had six options of who to study. So it was like Esther, Ruth, Samuel, Elijah, like a whole a whole group of them. And I didn't know which one I wanted to research first. So I just randomly decided on Esther. Now it led me down this crazy rabbit hole into Jewish history, as you um, heard in the five minutes of fun. But I'll start, I'll just take you through this, this journey with me. So before... Uh, before I started researching, I, I guess I knew of Esther and I knew she was a queen and I knew she had a role in saving uh, the Jews. I, I'm pretty sure I knew that, but I didn't know the entire story and I didn't really know any of the details. So let me just take you through the book of Esther. It has 10 chapters. Esther was a Jew living in Persia. So King Xerxes um, was the king of Persia, and he had a huge banquet. And at the end of the banquet, he commanded the queen to come forward to display her beauty and wealth. She ended up refusing to go in front of the king um, and all of these drunken men. Uh, and it doesn't say exactly why, but it's speculated that it's just because there probably weren't good intentions calling her to display her beauty in front of uh, a lot of drunk people. Because the feast was seven days, and so... Um, yeah, everyone was good and drunk by this. So anyway, she refused and it, they started panicking because they said, okay, if, um, if she doesn't obey, then all wives everywhere will hate their husbands. So King Xerxes was advised to issue a royal decree that the queen can never again enter the presence of the queen or sorry, the, the queen can never enter the presence of the king and must give her position to someone else. So that was chapter one. In chapter two, we see that uh, they are looking for beautiful virgins among the land uh, for the king to marry as the new queen, since the old queen has to get replaced. Um, so they go across the entire, uh, I guess, kingdom and bring women in to get beauty trimmings. And then the one that pleases the king, Xerxes the most, will become queen. So Haggai is in charge of all of the virgins and all their beauty treatments. So Esther was one of these women that got brought in for the beauty treatments and to see if she might be the next queen. So Esther won Haggai's favor, it said, and she provided beauty treatments and special food and was placed, got the best place in the harem, uh, basically, because Esther found favor um, with Haggai. So she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. She ended up winning the king's approval. He found her the most beautiful and um, attractive and won, uh, and basically was then the queen. So he set the royal head, the royal crown on her head and made her queen. So at this point, Esther's ethnicity and the fact that she was Jewish was still a secret within the, the palace because um, there was kind of enemies of the Jews around, which we'll see especially later. Um, but 
a guy named Mordecai was at the king's gate and he overheard two of the guards plotting to kill the king. So he ended up telling Esther and Esther reported that to the king and the two guards were impaled. So that happens all in chapter two. In chapter three, the king honors Haman. Um, Haman is like basically, I think, the second in command right now. Um, so he t- he advises the king on what royal decrees to send out and stuff like that. So um, the king honored Haman, his second in command, and all the royal officials were to kneel and pay honor to him. Well, Mordecai was a Jew and would not kneel down. And Haman, this rubbed him the wrong way. He said, why don't you kneel down? And because Haman, or because Mordecai was a Jew and that he wouldn't bow down, Haman was enraged at all the Jews. So he looked for a way to kill all the Jews throughout the kingdom, uh, throughout Xerxes' kingdom. So without really telling why, Haman told the king to issue a decree to destroy all the Jews. Um, so the basically the secretaries like wrote out the decree, sealed it with the king's orders because Haman had the power to do that with his uh, his stamped ring. He sealed the orders and sent it out to the kingdom saying that on this certain day, which he threw lots to decide, all the Jews would be killed. So Mordecai went, heard about this and went back and grieved in the city. It said he was in a sackcloth and he wailed and there was great mourning among the Jews. They had ashes, spread ashes on them and stuff like that. Um, attendants told Esther about Mordecai and she offered him clothes, um, but he didn't accept. And she asked him why he was feeling this way. And at that point, Mordecai told Esther about the Jewish annihilation that was planning to happen. Mordecai then instructed Esther to go into the king's presence and plead for her people. Um, she said, no, I can't go into his presence without a summon. There was a rule where the even the queen couldn't go into the, the king's presence unless they are put to death, unless he decides to spare them. If it was just like a waste of his time, he would put them to death. Um, so it was a high risk for, for Mordecai to ask Esther to do that. So Mordecai told Esther, because Esther was afraid of going to his presence, um, Mordecai said, you think you're, basically he said, you, you think you're going to be spared just because you're in the king's house? Like you're a Jew and maybe you've been put in a position for such a time as this. That's that famous quote. Mordecai was saying that to Esther and saying, don't be afraid because you're not going to be spared just because you're the queen. You're a Jew and they're going to annihilate all the Jews. So maybe you're here to use your influence to save the Jews. So Esther sent word back to Mordecai to say to gather together, fast and pray. And her attendants and her will also fast. And after the, um, the time of fasting, she'll go into the king's presence. So in chapter five, we see uh, Esther after the fast. She put on robes and like nice beautiful robes and went to the king's presence and the king was pleased with her. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter of the king and asked for the king to go to a banquet with her that she was hosting uh, with Haman. So they have this banquet that Esther is essentially hosting and the king is drinking wine and he said, hey, Esther, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, actually, I would like you to come to another banquet tomorrow. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll come to another banquet tomorrow. In the meantime, Haman saw Mordecai sitting around at the king's gate. And Mordecai was not afraid of Haman or of the Jewish annihilation that was about to happen, which made Haman even more mad. Now, it's important to see some of the uh, character traits of Haman during this. So 
it has a little aside where it says Haman basically thinks he's all high and mighty because he's thinking he's very special because he was invited to the banquet with the king. Because Esther called specifically uh, both the king and Haman to this banquet, um, he's thinking he's hot stuff. So Haman is mad. He thinks he's all high and mighty and he sees that Mordecai isn't afraid of him. So he tells the king to set up a 50 cubit pole to impale Mordecai. Then in chapter six, it says the king couldn't sleep. So he asked someone to come read him the record of his reign, which is a weird thing. Like he basically needs a bedtime story, but it's like of his own rule and reign. Um, So yeah, that's interesting. But when that happened, it was found that it was recorded in that record that Mordecai was the one that had exposed the two guards that tried to assassinate Xerxes. So he was like, he asked, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? And Haman had just entered the court to talk to the king about impaling Mordecai as the king was finding this out about how Mordecai saved his life. So the king asked Haman, what would you do for someone that the king finds favor with. So like, how would you honor a person that deserves the king's honor? It's basically what the king asked to Haman. Now Haman, thinking that he is the best thing ever, thinks that he is the one that the king is talking about. Like he is going to get this honor. He goes on and on and on and says, okay, well, we should put a royal robe on them. He should have the, he should ride the king's horse. The king's crest should be on his head. Um, we should bring him through the city streets on the king's horse, proclaiming, This is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. The king immediately told Haman to go get Mordecai, who Haman wants to impale. But he said, go get Mordecai and do all you just said. So Haman did it. And then um, as soon as as he did that whole kind of charade, uh, he rushed home in grief and told his wife and all of his friends what had happened. And his wife said, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Then Haman was rushed to the banquet that Esther prepared. So there was a little foreshadowing in there. And they said, since, you know, basically since God is with the Jewish people and this Mordecai is Jewish, you can already see that you're not going to win here. Um, So good on his wife for recognizing that. Um, So that's the end of chapter six. Chapter seven, we see everyone at the second banquet. So it's the king, Haman, and Esther, and a bunch of other people. Um, at the banquet, the king said, Esther, what is your petition? It will be granted up to half the kingdom. Again, so you can you can have whatever you want. Um, Esther asked her to grant her life and to spare the Jewish people. So this is where she, she makes her move. She said, if my people had just been sold um, into like slavery or mistreated or something, uh, I would have not said anything, but now that they're going to be completely destroyed, I have to say something. Um, and you have a decree that says that on this certain day that the Jews are going to be annihilated. And the king asked, who has done this? And Esther replied that Haman had been the one that had decreed this. So the king left. He was enraged that uh, he had done this, that Haman had done this. And Haman knew that it was pretty much a lost cause of the king. So Haman started begging Esther to spare his life because she knew he, he knew that she would play an important role in kind of deciding what Haman's fate was. 
Okay, so Haman started begging for his life to Esther. Esther ended up sitting on like a couch and reclining. And right as the king walked back in, Haman was falling on the couch that Esther was reclining on. So that looked really bad. And the king goes, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in my house? So he thought that Haman was also then trying to molest the queen. So didn't didn't work out very well. So the king ordered Haman to be impaled on the same pole that he set up for Mordecai to be impaled on. So pretty ironic there. So now Haman is dead. This is in chapter eight. The king gave Esther the estate of Haman to kind of manage in the meantime. Mordecai ended up coming into the presence of the king. Esther told how oh, I think I might have forgotten to mention Esther and Mordecai are related. They are not siblings, they're like cousins or something. So they're related. So Mordecai came into the presence of the king. Esther said that he was related to her. And so the king gave Mordecai um, Haman's signet ring, which is what Haman used to send out the decrees uh, on behalf of the king, essentially. Um, So that's now Mordecai's responsibility. Esther ended up pleading again with the king about stopping the evil plan of Haman and Um, asked for an order to like overturn uh, Haman's orders. So the king said, well, there's no way to overturn basically a, an order that the king has already sent out. We can just only decree a new order. So the first order said that um, this other group was supposed to attack the Jews and kill them. Now it was against the law for them to like fight back apparently because they were supposed to be annihilated. Well, this second decree was not that the, since it was already sent out that the first group had to kill the Jews and attack them, you couldn't reverse that. So they had to send out a new decree that just said the Jews can fight back basically. And so, I don't know, it doesn't sound that great, but since the Jews already had that overturned basically, or, you know, Haman was dead and you know, now they, they were able to, uh, um, fight back. They had all the confidence and the, that God was behind them and God was not going to let them, uh, perish. So they, um, celebrated and many people actually converted to Judaism, it says, because of this event, because they were facing certain annihilation. And then God was, uh, used Esther to issue a new decree. So the day of the original decree came when uh, the Jews were supposed to be annihilated and they came out stronger than ever. They were ready to go. They had God behind them. They assembled in the cities to attack their enemies and to protect themselves. Um, So then it goes in in chapter nine about all of um, kind of each city, how many were killed and, and whatnot. So the interesting part of this is they were very good in this battle. They killed a lot of people and they conquered or they, you know, they protected themselves from getting destroyed in the rural towns and everything. The fighting got done on the 14th day of the month, but in the cities where Haman's sons were and Haman's family were, Esther actually asked to delay basically the celebration of their win by one day in order to impale the sons of Haman kind of a lot of revenge there. But so after the battle, they all had joy and feasting. So rural ones celebrated on the 14th city Jews were celebrating on the 15th. So they decreed that it just would happen over two days. Um, So annually everyone celebrates on the 14th and 15th month of Adar, 14th day of the month of Adar. Um, And that was known as Purim. Now Purim means lots. And that's because Haman, um, when he was deciding which day to kill the Jews cast lots to determine that. So 
Um, and then the last chapter, chapter 10, is super short and says how Mordecai was the second in command um, and was held in high regard by all the Jews because he worked for the good of his people. So he essentially replaced Haman and um, brought a lot of honor to the Jews. Okay, so that's the story of Esther. Now, I looked up a little bit about the history of the actual book of Esther, and um, I found this article that was talking about how um, the actual book kind of suffered at the hands of interpreters over the last however many years. It was one of the last books to be put in the canon, and it was accepted because of its connection to Purim and because of that festival. Um, it's come under scrutiny before because God is not mentioned in the book, but fasting is mentioned. So um, it wasn't super clear as to whether Esther was like living as a Jew. It, this article says that some rabbis were really troubled by the fact that Esther was not living with a Jew and she had living, sorry, that she was not living as a Jew and that she had had sex and married a Gentile. Um, you know, she lives in a Persian court and she doesn't seem to be following Jewish dietary laws. However, we'll go into this a little bit more with Purim. One of the things that's popular to eat during this festival is, um, is beans because they say that must be what she ate a lot because she was follow, following the dietary code. So I think there's like some debate about whether she was following Jewish dietary food laws and customs um, or not. I would think no, uh, because they said that she was keeping her Jewish identity a secret. And if you were only eating like beans and, and clearly following kosher laws, I think that would be a pretty big giveaway that you were Jewish. Um, so I, I tend to think maybe no, she was not following dietary customs, but at the same time, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I'm not a hundred percent sure. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about why the Catholics have, um, extra books, but part of the Septuagint that is added in the Catholic church also gives an extension of Esther and that Septuagint, the, the part of Esther that's added has prayers and it says that Esther loathes her current lifestyle and it was written a long time after the actual book of Esther, but it adds more detail that she was praying to God and that she doesn't like her Persian lifestyle and she wants to live as a Jew. Like I mentioned before, that was added, I think, a couple hundred years after the book of Esther. So I don't know if it, it doesn't sound like that was an eyewitness account. I have no problem with the book of Esther not having any direct correlations to God. It's a historical book and you know there is fasting mentioned i don't think um i don't think it's a stretch to say that you can celebrate because god saved the jewish people just because she didn't directly overtly pray to god in the book so it's never bothered me that esther doesn't you know have that many religious undertones it's a good historical event to celebrate and you can clearly see how god saved the jews um it was also criticized a little bit because esther was so bloodthirsty and destroying the gentiles so like when she waited an extra day to impale haman's sons uh some rabbis have been a little skeptical or troubled i should say about that the overall purpose of the book is really to say that it's possible to achieve success in a country you're not or that you're exiled to, um, and you can still keep your Jewish identity. And God, it really tells the story about how God is faithful to the Jewish people. So that brings us to Purim. And I really didn't know that I was going to be researching this, but, um, okay. So the, the two days where they were celebrating their victory, which is the 14th and 15th month of Adar, that is known as Purim because of the casting lots. We went over that. So, um, 
But I wanted to see how Jews celebrate it today and why Christians don't. Because before this, I had never heard about Purim. And I was like, this seems like something that we should be celebrating because it's a historical event that we're celebrating. So I looked up when Purim is this year. And it turns out it was February 25th through 26th. So you start celebrating at sun sundown on the 25th and uh, the feast celebrates at nightfall on the 26th. Well, what are the odds? Like I started researching this probably the 22nd, February 22nd. So I immediately start researching and I realized that this festival that was created in Esther is being celebrated in like three days. So I thought that was amazing because I just randomly picked Esther as the first person in my biblical heroes. And it turns out the the festival that's established in her book is was that week. So that was a, a crazy thing. But um, okay, so how is Purim celebrated today? Um, first of all, Purim is celebrated by doing a few things. You first of all, read the book of Esther. So in synagogue, um, it says the book of Esther is read in the morning and evening services on Purim. And every time, this is very interesting too, it says to blot out the name of Haman or that the Jews blotted out the name of Haman. And so there's multiple traditions that have gone with that. Some of them like write Haman on the bottom of their shoes. And then every time Haman is mentioned, you like stomp. Um, But basically the most common way that this happens is that every single time when they're reading the book of Esther in synagogue, every time the name Haman is read, a loud noise is made to drown out his name. So people bring in like noisemakers, it sounds like, and clap and stomp and yell and all that stuff every time Haman is mentioned so that you can't uh, hear anyone say Haman. So that's kind of, that's interesting. Now, like a more modern tradition is that people dress up in costumes. Some dress up as the traditional characters of the story, but not all. There's a lot of modern day costumes. I went on TikTok and, and did a hashtag happy Purim and searched through the trending and it looked like Halloween basically. So everyone was dressed up in, there were not that many traditional costumes it didn't look like. So I think at least in like America, um, it's mostly, it seems to be modern costumes and they dress up in costumes because, well, there's a few reasons for it. Basically, one of them is that Esther was hiding her Jewish identity. She kind of kept that under wraps and that's what ended up uh, letting her uh, be queen and then save the Jewish people. The other one was that God saved the Jews through natural events. So it was kind of hidden in natural um, events, but it was God behind the whole thing. So it was like a disguise. So that's why, uh, they dress up in costumes. And then there's, um, an element of giving to the poor and giving food to other people. So a lot of people assemble these baskets of food and share it with their friends and family, and then also assemble these and give it to the poor. So you're supposed to give two different kinds of food to like a family or friend, and then you're supposed to give, uh, food or money to the poor. So that's really cool. And then one of the the biggest part is just eating and having this jovial feast. So apparently this is like the most fun, like a holiday in the Jewish calendar, um, because you are required to drink alcohol. And some even go so far to say, you must not be able to tell the difference between the phrases Aurora Haman and Baruch Mordecai, which means cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. Um, you should be so drunk that you can't even tell the difference between those two phrases. Uh, so definitely drinking is a part of this because it's a huge celebration. And then they eat a lot of triangular foods. So I looked up the traditional um, Purim 
foods. And there is a tradition, triangular cookie called, uh, Hamantaschen, Hamantaschen. I'm probably saying that wrong. I'm sorry if you're Jewish, but the triangular cookie is usually filled with jam and poppy seeds. And they are called the ears of Haman. That, that word that I mispronounced is, it means the ears of Haman. And it represents Haman's ears or his three-cornered hat. So you eat those in remembrance that Haman was going to kill the Jews. There's also something called Kreplok. Again, probably saying that wrong, but it's that is a small triangular dumpling that is filled with meat or mashed potatoes or something savory. And then again, um, beans are associated with Purim because they say that Esther ate that in the king's palace to avoid eating non-kosher foods. Um, and for that reason, Purim is often celebrated with a vegetarian meal, um, because of her kosher, trying to be kosher in the palace, which again, I think is up for dispute if she was actually following those, but either way, beans are traditional on the holiday. So this year it was celebrated on the 25th and 26th of February, like I said, but that does change every year because it's celebrated on the 14th and 15th day of the Jewish month of Adar. Now the Jewish calendar has leap years sometimes and in, in leap years, there's actually two months of Adar, which is one and two. Purim is celebrated on the second one, um, but there's a mini Purim celebration on the first month of Adar. So that is Esther and Purim. I hope you learned a ton. I did too. I really was just thinking that this was going to be a super short episode about how Esther was great. And I would just go through the 10 chapters and really just talk about Esther essentially. But it it really spiraled into this whole study of modern Jewish culture with the celebration of Purim. And then I also, I mean, I'll get into this more in other episodes, but that really spun me into researching about what festivals are Christians not celebrating that we, I think, should be celebrating. So, so it turns out there's a bunch of festivals in Leviticus that God commands to be celebrated. And a lot of those are like things that would help atone for the sin. So there's like Yom Kippur is the day of atonement and people would go and fast for many days beforehand and then bring like their sacrifices, make a sacrifice and atone for their sins. And it would make sense as a Christian to not celebrate Yom Kippur because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice and we don't have to make a sacrifice anymore for our sins to be forgiven. But a festival like Purim is celebrating a historical event where God saved the Jewish people. And so that seems like Christians should be celebrating that because of our shared history with the Jewish people. Same thing with Hanukkah, where um, Hanukkah is remembering that uh, when this temple was rebuilt, they could only find a small jar of oil and that jar of oil lit the candle in the tabernacle for eight days. So they celebrate this historic event where God showed himself to the Jewish people. And that seems great to celebrate for Christians as well, because we are invested in the Jewish history. Things where you're like atoning for your sins or making a sacrifice, I feel like no longer we have the need to celebrate. So that is things like Yom Kippur. But these other ones that are historical events, I feel like Christians are kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater where it's like, we should be celebrating that God saved the Jewish people because we came from the Jewish people, we're grafted in uh, with them. And so so I think I'm going to try to dive a lot more into the, some of these Jewish holidays and go see which ones I think 
you know, Christians should be celebrating and which ones, uh, have been kind of absolved by the new Testament. And, um, who knows, I might be celebrating Purim and Hanukkah next year because I think they're both very relevant and, and God should be, uh, celebrated for those events. So anyway, that's all for this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, I, again, I'm using this podcast as a, my Jewish studies major. So if you've ever been, uh, interested in Jewish studies, this is your podcast. Um, we're going to learn a ton together. So thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to go, uh, put a rating on, I think it's Apple podcast is what you really have to rate. I think my outro says iTunes or something, but go on Apple podcast and give it a rating because that's how everyone's going to find our podcast. Next week is actually going to be a really fun episode. I'm going to have my first guest on the episode. One of my best friends uh, from like middle school is going to come on. She is super passionate about her Catholic faith and she's involved in the pro-life movement. So we're going to get into all of that, what she does for work, the Catholic church, what her favorite parts are, and then how she got involved and educated about the pro-life movement and the abortion industry. So going to be a great episode and I will see you next week. Thanks everyone. Bye. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our millennial learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a millennial learns. Go check me out. Follow me. DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday.